Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a unique map of our potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you're looking to dive deeper into human design, join our Living Your Design Workshop. You can start the course at any time and attend the live meetings on September 11th and 25th, 2021 with John Cole and Amy Lee. Rave ABCs is the next step in the foundation courses through which we begin to see into the mechanics of our nature. We invite you to join us for our next live five-week class starting November 10th, 2021. For more information, go to courses.humandesigncollective.com. Today's guest is Jonah Dempsey, a computer programmer, musician, and human design practitioner living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's known for the music project Revolution Void, as well as his YouTube channel where he gives free human design readings and jazz piano lessons. In this episode, we discuss Jonah's personal experience as a 5-1 sacral generator and some of the current hot topics in human design. Well, Jonah, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. So I'm thinking back to when we first met. Was that, what, 2018 at the United Astrology Conference in Chicago? That's right. Yeah, I remember. I um, I had seen you on Facebook before, and I... I had seen that you jo- you joined the astrology group, and then I think I was posting about human design in there. It was, uh-huh. I'm pretty sure is, is how, it, you know, which I was really ambivalent about because I was so deep in my generator experiment. I was like, is it initiating if I simply announce that I'm interested in meeting other human design people, you know? And, and I, I think I did somehow get around that because it either came up or, you know what it was probably was the person that actually gave me, gifted me the UAC tickets, connected me with a bunch of their friends and told them all, this guy does human design. And so I think they started posting about it and the freaks came out of the woodwork, you know, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And and I remember seeing your post, I was heading into this big astrological conference that happens every every four to six years. And Mm -hmm. I was so jazzed up about human design at the time not that I wasn't interested in, you know, the astrology part of the conference. I was, but I was more excited that there would be some people there that I could actually meet in person and talk about human design with. I think I saw your post and that's how we connected and then ended up spending uh, a good part of the conference together, running around, sharing human design with a few others and meeting you and hanging out with you ended up being the highlight of it for me. We had a blast, you know, we, we hung out with Chetan Parkin, who uh, is also a 2-4 like you, and, and his uh, person he was there with, his colleague was a 5-1 like me, so we had this little 5-1, 2-4 group, you know, I was bringing in some of the more heretical people, I was connecting uh, with David Palmer, who's a really wow. kind of heretical astrologer, he's also a 5-1, and he was one of the only other people there who knew about human design, I, I was really surprised, I think I was kind of naive then, because I assumed that I was really late to the party. And I assumed that everybody else had more mutative secret knowledge than me. And, you know, I was, I was just an outsider and it was so funny to then be able to meet someone like Chetan or to meet you and to be able to all speak the same language together. It was such a delight and I had such a blast and we went to lunch at the same place every day, you know, following (laughs) your uh, taste determination. That's right. It was great. It was, like, it was part of a, it was like a natural enough food place, but it was also the same menu and, and part of a chain that was in Austin where you're from. So that was a nice, 
you know, how to eat on vacation or, or on a trip with dates. <laughs> when you're close. Because you, you, you have to eat like local, you can't just do fast food or something. And it, it wasn't, it was really delicious local, you know, greens and things like that, quinoa bowls, but you know. Exactly. And we got to work with the pentadynamics of trying to figure out where everyone is going to go eat lunch and to, to accommodate all the different tastes and eating styles. And Oh, and then one great memory I, I don't want to forget was just when you were giving a reading. So I, I got to see for our listeners out there, you know, John is an absolutely fantastic human design analyst. And I got to kind of see him in action when we did a little bit of dual analyst, you know, human design readings for people. And, and he has that channel of, you know, initiation. So he would often kick it off. But I think one of those first ones we did was at that restaurant and you pointed it out. You kind of kept nodding your head and it was a guy that looked just like Ra. And it was such a nice little synchronicity to have this old bearded dude, you know, sitting over there. Yeah, I remember that, that he was at the table near us. It's uncanny how much he looked like Ra. It was an interesting moment. What to do with that, I don't know, but yeah, since then, what, that was 2018, so much has happened. I mean, human design has kind of exploded all over, at least the, you know, Facebook and Instagram, and we're seeing a lot of interest coming in, you know, in terms of session work and classes. I know you spend a lot of time talking with people, you run a local meetup group where you live. And you're pretty active online. What are you seeing out there? What are some of the topics that are coming up or that have caught your interest? Well, I definitely go in phases of how available I am on social media platforms. And so I kind of typically will have these periods of time where I'm out of the loop and so on. And even this last year, we had to postpone the in-person weekly sessions uh, because of the pandemic. So I ended up you know, not having as much in-person human design discussion. Some of that did translate into more time spent online. I've, you know, I've kind of moved through different human design groups on Facebook. And then more recently, I was added to a group chat on Instagram with a lot of Instagram human design accounts. Uh, and I was really happy to discover them. You know, I still don't use Instagram that much as a, as a platform. So it's definitely been a big change since 2018. I mean, it, it felt like at that time, that human design was kind of a secret almost. I mean, people really did not know about it. And even people who thought they'd heard of it typically had heard of Gene Keys. And that's what I found again and again and again in Seattle where I lived for, for 25 years. And so as I was living in Seattle and I was meeting people, you know, I would sometimes mention human design or often I wouldn't. And it was all Gene Keys. I ended up actually, just as a side note, I ended up going to Gene Keys courses there. And I was just chuckling to myself yesterday how they never, ever found out that I knew anything about human design or Gene Keys because I was so deep in the experiment of not initiating. I wasn't about to volunteer that information. You know, nobody ever asked me. But I ended up meeting all these Gene Keys people who just thought I was just some rube off the street and treated me like one. It was an interesting experience. So, you know, that trip to Chicago in, you know, May, June of 2018 was really life-changing to me because I, I stopped by Santa Fe on the way back from Chicago and I stayed in Santa Fe for two weeks and just fell in love with it here and ended up moving three months later. And that's where I've lived, lived since then. And since I moved here also, it's interesting, I've actually met in person a lot of people who are into human design and uh, I, I hadn't realized, you know, how there is this little mutative pocket of the U.S. here in Santa Fe where there are a lot of, of you know, human design practitioners. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the most fun synchronicities I had with that was on the human design new year this year, you know, January, whatever it was, 21st, 22nd, the sun going into gate 41, the first time in gate 41. And I was hosting a rave new year party at my retail space in downtown Santa Fe. 
And I was with my business partner, Michael Steenbeck Litvin, who's um, also really, you know, he also does, you know, human design and so on. We're having this kind of rave new year celebration. And we end up seeing that somebody else is doing a live stream on Instagram. And it's this guy, Teo, Teo Montoya, who's, you know, a cool human design kind of Instagram account and posts, you know, educational materials and so on. We start watching his live stream. And pretty soon we realize he has just moved to Santa Fe and is at that moment 0.5 miles, half a mile from our physical location. Wow. So he came over and we celebrated the Rave New Year together. You know? I do love that I'm feeling a little more connected now through Instagram and Facebook. There is this virtual community or communities, and there are some bifurcations happening. And I think that would be one of the interesting things to talk about is just some of the offshoots. I mean, there's older offshoots like Gene Keys, where, you know, it's fairly well established, but then there's these newer offshoots, like what's being called cosmic sidereal human design. There's also quantum human design that Karen Curry Parker. There's obviously um, the work of John Martin and Teresa Blanding, which is also diverges in certain significant ways from human design. Uh, there's the work of John from Genetic Matrix, which diverges in certain ways as well, although perhaps he's a little more yeah, I'd be curious to hear your your take on that. But but yeah, it seems like there's a real renaissance and a real proliferation of viewpoints. You know, some of it is really mutative. But some of it is is not. Some of it is actually really, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like seven-centered kind of self-help culture co-opting human design terms and concepts. But but you know, I I do think that all of these these areas are worthy of discussion, at least so we are clear about what the various uh, stakes of the arguments are. You know, what are the stakes for the true sidereal people and, and, and what are the stakes for, for some of the different offshoots? And I would say that there's absolutely more discussion than ever in all of my time in human design, which is, has not been that long. I mean, I've definitely, I was exposed to it in 2006, but I consider 2015 when I began to actively engage in my experiments. So I was, it was on my radar before 2015, but I wasn't actually, so it's really only about going on six years for me that I've been deep in the experiment, even though I've known about human design for going, I guess, 15 years now. But I would say that just in the six years that I've been such an actively engaged member of the communities and so on, it's really only in the past couple of years that there's been an absolute explosion of interest. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's quite something to see. Well, we would love to hear your perspectives on some of these topics that you've brought up in the classes and the readings that John and I are doing all the time, we have people come in often and say, well, what about quantum human design? And what about gene keys? And what about what this person's saying over here and there? So I would love to get your perspective on that. But before we do that, I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about the kind of key elements of your design so that people know who they're hearing from and kind of how you approach these new perspectives when they come in. Could you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a 5-1 sacral generator. I don't have a defined solar plexus. I have a defined root to sacral through the 952 and then sacral to the G center uh, from the 2946. So I only have two channels. And my personal experience of my chart has been that for about the first year of really experimenting with sacral response, I was struggling with it. And I was having a lot of kind of a year of chaos, which... Um, 
you know, I, I, I'm on the cross of healing and I kind of believe that your incarnation cross not only contains, you know, within it certain hints for what your potential purposes in life may be, but also to the deconditioning process itself. You know, a sleeping phoenix is going to wake up and burn everything to the ground. And a cross of healing is going to have to get really sick first, you know, before they can actually really decondition into, into what that, that, you know, design is, which in my case, it's all about the sacral response. So about one year into my experiment, I had what I've later termed a sacral awakening experience. At that point, I didn't really know what it, what it was. And at that point, I really got it. And, you know, interestingly, after that, it, it was hard. It's actually something like, I do think we kind of take two steps forward, one step backward, two steps forward, one step, step backward in terms of our deconditioning. And it's not always a straight line. And in fact, we get sidetracked sometimes for years, you know, in our process and, uh, I felt some cold comfort in the idea that, you know, Uranus, whose keynote is the sidetrack, is actually the friend of the human design experimenter, and that it's nothing to worry about if you if you seem to get pulled into these different areas, because that's part of it, you know, that's part mm -hmm. of part of the human design experiment itself is is being surprised where you end up, because <laughs> it doesn't really go where you, you expect it. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, but I would say, so it was about five years ago, I had my sacral awakening. And at that point, I really did for about seven or eight days, experience an altered state of consciousness that I can only liken to something like a trance state, a semi-trance state. I was still absolutely able to boot up my mind, you know, as necessary, but then I was also able to really deepen into a state of waiting that was kind of like an actively engaged waiting that was also not full of the mental pressure to initiate. It was like the first time in my life I allowed myself to relax a grip on something that had never been relaxed ever before. You know what I mean? So I took that experience as sort of my, my hallmark of, you know, no matter what else, you know, after that, I began to discover that a lot of the mental fears, I even saw today in a human design Facebook group, this idea isn't it possible that even if you've been in the human design experiment for years, you're just getting trapped in some mental loop hall of mirrors and you've only tricked yourself into believing you have sacral response. And I was like, no, not at all, because that's like tricking yourself into believing you had an orgasm. You know, you just can't, you know, you can't really do it. Like, you know, because literally, literally I've, I've had the experience even more than ever recently of someone saying, Hey, are you going to do that? And I'll say, yeah. And then I won't move. And I'll realize that my body is not allowing me to physically do the things that I'm not responding to anymore. Yep. It's like broken. The whole mechanism of forcing myself to do things I didn't want to do is broken, you know, and it, and it breaks permanently. It never comes back. So, you know, I do think human design does, does have permanent changes. And I don't think that there's this risk of, you know, having been in the experiment for so many years and then, and then losing yourself in the mind once again, because once the strategy and authority does settle in and kind of take hold, it is like a virus that sort of works its way through your system and it does change you. And so that personal experience of having had the changes and so on kind of gave me the coordinates to then do my own metaphysical research program. And I am a huge fan of new research and I see a lot of new research out there because I do think there are so many nuances that are just waiting to be uncovered. And so that's why I am pretty charitable to these offshoots in general. I was not charitable to the true sidereal human design, uh, Richard Mason. You know, I, I was charitable enough to interview him for three hours where I took him step by step through what he was saying. And he disagreed with me and said he wasn't saying that. 
which led me to believe that he didn't really understand what his system was actually saying. It basically just led me to believe that he didn't, he didn't really know what he was talking about in a very literal sense, that he was saying things that he did not understand what they meant. In most cases, I'm actually quite charitable because I personally love the human design experiment as this sort of research program where you are being given a vocabulary and a language to use, and then you kind of get these buckets to start collecting the results of your experiments in. And you start to get to see, oh, that's what a 3740 is like. Oh, now I understand when that 2343 is saying they don't know. Like you start to kind of see it and, and be able to collect information in these buckets. And so I, I do really appreciate sort of the spirit of experimentation that I think human design you know, has as a culture. I think that's been there from the very beginning. I think Ra was very clear that this is an experiment and he was very clear that he was laying the groundwork for future generations to fill out some of those details. Yeah, I kind of have to ask maybe the elephant in the room question. When it comes to some of these offshoots, how much of it do you think is basically people not being comfortable with, say, the frequency or the original transmission, essentially not liking their chart and just wanting to either, like with the case of sidereal astrology, you know, I don't like the fact that I am an emotional generator, so I'm going to run it this other way and I like this version of it better. Do you see any of that going on or do you yeah, think- I mean- Yes and no, because I, I will say that I, I do see a spirit of curiosity, of genuine curiosity in many of those who are experimenting with true sidereal or with the other sidereal forms, like the one you can do on genetic matrix, which is a little bit different. I, I do see a spirit of curiosity there. And I also see the attempt to reconcile very similar to, to Eleanor Haspel Portner's work, uh, where she generates multi-dimensional charts and so on. I have not found any value in that work. And I tried for quite a long time and I continued to find basically impractical and kind of pointless random charts that didn't yield any useful information. But I do think that there is this experimental curious spirit, you know, probably embodied in the third line more than anything else, which says, I want to see for myself and I want to see if I can make it useful. So people have tried to like say the sidereal chart is a higher dimensional chart and your other chart is your mundane or one is the spirit and one is the soul. And they've gone through great lengths to try to elaborate what these different terms mean in some meaningful sense. But I don't think it's yet happened. I don't think anyone's actually found any use in any of this. Now, there is the case where the originator of true sidereal, now called cosmic sidereal human design, Richard Mason, I do think that he may have had ulterior motives that maybe even he doesn't realize not necessarily with a dislike of his own chart, but more with a desire to have an impact on the world. And I think that's a manifester, not self-theme, is kind of impact at any cost. It's, I'm going to change it. You know, I, I know personally a manifester who has co-hosted the Human Design Catalyst groups two years ago with me, who really tries to change certain significant parts of human design, like sleeping alone, and says that it was because of Ra's personal hangups that he didn't think you should sleep in aura. And I say, that's not true at all. It's because of the mechanics and we argue about it. But you know, this is another example. I think it's common for a manifester, more so than a projector generator, or manifesting generator or a reflector, to really focus on this impact and kind of think, well, you know, and especially if they're a third line, I'm not necessarily going to trust what this other person said. I'm going to make my own system. I'm just going to make my own. Now, of course, this happens with other types too. And I, I believe Richard Rudd is a generator. I could be wrong about that. I don't really spend a lot of time looking at 
looking at the charts of um, of these people. Also, because I don't want to necessarily corrupt my view. I mean, I don't really mind if somebody tells me the chart of somebody, but I'm not really looking for explanations in the chart so much. So even what I'm saying about how manifest or not self themes are trying to have impact at any cost, I don't want to take that too far because I think anybody can go out there and say, here's my new system. The difference is if you're a manifester, you can have a huge impact. And it's, inc it's incredible to me what a big impact these manifestors have had. John from Genetic Matrix, three years ago, changed his time zone calculations. And for three years, a significant portion of the charts he has generated on Genetic Matrix have been slightly wrong in areas like variable and dietary regimen and motivation. That's just a manifester having a huge impact, that a huge negative impact even, that they don't realize. Richard Mason, as well with the, the true sidereal, has really had a lot of impact with his statements. And he's actually been pretty disingenuous. You know, for instance, I, you know, I don't want to go into the details too much unless you would, you would like me to, but, you know, he really led people to believe that he was using the true sidereal astrological system, the true sidereal astrological, you know, modifications, because there's a whole astrological school of thought that actually modifies the zodiac to better match the constellations. And there are valid reasons why someone might want to do that, especially in astrology. I don't really think there are valid reasons in human design, but for astrology, you know, it makes sense why true sidereal astrology emerged. But then Richard Mason took all of these valid or potentially valid reasons from true sidereal astrology, claimed his system as true sidereal human design, and claimed that he was using the true sidereal modification. Well, it came out months later that he had not informed anyone that he was merely using the number of degrees offset, but was not making any of the other modifications that true sidereal astrology makes to the widths of the science and so on. Beyond that, he admitted as much in my interview with him. And then a week later on Facebook, someone asked him, could you tell me what modifications to the science true sidereal uses? And he sent them the list, neglecting to inform them that he ignores that list and that he was making true sidereal human design in name only, not even applying the principles of true sidereal astrology consistently. Yeah. I mean, it's, I come from a background in astrology. I spent years doing Western astrology, modern Western astrology, and then I ended up going into Vedic or Indian sidereal astrology, and then moved back to traditional Western astrology, like Hellenistic and Greek astrology, really because I personally found that the sidereal astrology in my own practice and own experience and, and that of my clients didn't hold up very well. And it's kind of a big statement, you know, to dismiss all that, which I'm not doing right now. But I will say that even in the astrological community, there are people who are doing Indian astrology, Vedic astrology, and they're using the tropical zodiac, which I find interesting. And they're one of the things that is being kind of put forth is that things were mistranslated along the way. And there is a specific use for sidereal astrology, and there's a use for tropical astrology and that that's been mixed up. So that's kind of a whole nother topic, but... Well, but it's actually core to that. No, I mean, it is, it's another topic, but it's core to the issue here. And I think it's the same in human design where the human design system itself does use sidereal. It right. uses it for the global cycles. And I think this is a real misunderstanding when people say, well, human design should use sidereal. It's like we are. And when you redouble that sidereal calculation, you actually lose one of the zodiacs, you don't gain one, you know, you lose one. Right. And so, so there's a small group who I consider very well researched, very knowledgeable Vedic astrologers with 
a lot of experience and time in the game. And what they're doing is they are using the tropical zodiac for the signs, for the houses, to place the planets in, in the wheel or in the chart. And then they're using this sidereal zodiac for the nakshatras and for very certain dashas and timing mechanisms that are based on the positions of the fixed stars. And I see that as being coherent or in line with the way it's used in human design, like you just said, where we're using the global cycles referencing the sidereal zodiac, but when it comes to our experience in our bodies on this planet, we're mapping the positions of the planets through the astrological tropical zodiac to the gates of the I Ching and the wheel and the rave mandala. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's yeah, you, you said it perfectly. I mean, we really are using, we are using both. You know, I have two comments, I guess, about the validity of astrology, uh, or maybe three. A lot of different astrological systems do work and they work because there is a sort of fractal repetition of the sort of absolute of the matrix, you know, if we could call it that, or of the Maya, <laughs> not, not, not matrix in the sense of the movie, but I, I like to kind of think of it that way. I think it was actually Richard Tarnas, the archetypal astrologer, who said, you know, he, Rick Tarnas, he only really looked at the planetary cycles, the synodic cycles. He didn't really spend a lot of time on ascendant or but he would look at the planetary cycles and because he studied them for 15 years, he became really adept at kind of decoding and deconstructing and synthesizing narratives out of these global cycles. And he is fantastic. I absolutely still watch all of his archetypal astrological material. And I like to synthesize that in with my own understandings of the changes happening because of the, the global cycles. But my point is, what he was saying is he said, you know, some astrologers, they're gonna get really good at the nodes. Some astrologers, they're going to spend so much time on the houses, or they're gonna be Hellenistic astrologers and they're gonna study time lords and this and that. And, and again, I think even you know traditional conventional Vedic astrology. I mean, we, we shouldn't forget that Ra Uruhu's year of death was correctly predicted by a Vedic astrologer. So I guess my first point here is anything, any metaphysical research program you embark on you can get really good at gleaning information from subtle changes that other people would miss. So, and that goes for any of them because there is a sort of factually repeating pattern. Okay, the second thing I wanna say though is that there's a significant difference between interpreting things in a seven-centered paradigm versus a nine-centered paradigm. And the seven-centered paradigm, the left variable, kind of 90,000 years paradigm that we've inherited is the paradigm of the apex predator, where you use the mind in a very Machiavellian manipulative way to become the apex predator through scheming and through intelligence and so on. And this is what humans had to learn to do. That was our evolutionary project. That was the agenda of our genetics and of the program for 90,000 years. Well, since 1781, that agenda has changed and we are no longer seven-centered, and yet we are still living with the vestiges of the seven-centered and with the artifacts of the seven-centered world and with the weight of 90,000 years of seven-centered history. I think it's the right variable people who feel this most acutely. You know, they feel so out of place in this left variable world. But I guess what my point is, is that these old school left variable systems still work in part because of the weight of the seven-centered world, which we have still not fully grown out of, but they're working less day by day. They're becoming less and less accurate day by day, and they're on the way out. Yeah, that's really interesting, that perspective. Let's see what you're saying there. You know, kind of coming back to some of these topics you touched on earlier, 
Like, where are you seeing that there's actual interesting mutative research where we're going deeper into the system, we're exploring it empirically and seeing what actually holds up versus where the mind is coming in and, and then trying to essentially grab the wheel again and say, let me you know, manipulate or twist this around so that it makes me feel better about myself or my situation here. If someone's saying, well, I don't like my tropical human design chart, I'll go with my sidereal human design chart because I don't, I'm not comfortable with the idea that this is all predetermined or that I don't have any say in it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there, I could definitely imagine that, you know, some people are just coming to human design and then going, even just literally, I don't like raw. I mean, that's common. I mean, he is polarizing. He is the fifth line. He even predicted that there would be generations of what are now, um, you know, millennials who would have a distaste for him because of particular detriments, uh, you know, with regards to gate 61 and so on. That's definitely true. I will say, on the other hand, there is great mutative original research being done. And some of the people I see doing that, it's some familiar faces, but, you know, one example would be um, Cinzia Mastrio Simone. She's an incredible human design analyst. She just graduated after seven years in the experiment. And I'm not sure how long the study program was, but she's now, you know, IHDS certified and all this. And she just, she has the human design patterns, Instagram and the human design patterns, Facebook group. And what's funny is I'll see people quote her sometimes. And she has such a differentiated, distinct outer authority that I can recognize her text from like one sentence because she has huh. a, it's a particular way of talking and it's, or, you know, of, of communicating and it's so good. And she's doing tremendous research into, into a lot of really interesting areas. I wish that I spoke German or had more interaction with the 64 Keys people. And I wish that they didn't have a monetized walled garden because I believe Andreas and the 64 Keys folks and also some of the German HD folks like Martin Grassinger are doing incredible work on, you know, human design and, you know, the amino acids and things like that. You know, on the internet, if I were to talk about the mutative places to go, I really like Design with Brayden and Sam Zagar on Instagram. Uh, I don't follow them a ton, but I mean, I'm not on, on Instagram that much, but I think they've been posting good things. I like Thomas on there. I like um, Carol has been, has been posting really good content making. I mean, there's a lot of things that are kind of in the wings right now that I don't want to talk about because I'm not really sure if they're going to happen or not, but I'll just say crypto millionaires talking about funding open source human design projects. Um, people who know computer programming actually generating really useful statistical databases wow. for human design. I mean, this stuff's going on. It is happening. I just don't want to name names because I don't know the status of the various projects and I don't want to mess up the details. So there are some very exciting things happening. At the same time, I am much more a believer that we only really have six years till the door closes and that mm -hmm. the people who are alive today who are interested in human design now are going to get the benefit from it that is that is going to help them through this amazing transitional time. So what's really exciting to me is that on May 9th, Neptune entered into gate 36. That's May 9th of 2021. And that actually kicks off this huge transformational process that doesn't end until May 4th of 2060. So it doesn't end for 39 years. And we have these incredible transits that are happening in our lifetime. So I see the human design knowledge as kind of helping those who get it survive this incredible time of transformation and transition, hopefully retain some of the knowledge for future generations. But I'm not so optimistic about large-scale projects in the future. Because what I see here is as Neptune enters into gate 36, 
you know, this is the human experience away. This is a very, it's all about what it means to be human. And you'll see that as Neptune goes through gate 36, it finally um, leaves gate 36 in 2024. And then two days later, Pluto enters into gate 41 and begins transforming for those who aren't familiar, gate 41 and gate 36 are both in the human experiential way. So Pluto's going in there and it's transforming what it means to be human, transforming the human story. The last time it was in gate 41 was the Declaration of Independence or something. And then we have these incredible synchronicities that happen, these synchronistic movements flashing forward to the year 2056, when Neptune goes into gate 35 which is also part of the human experiential way. After four years in 2060, it's, it leaves gate 35 a mere one day before Pluto enters gate 36. So, I mean, I know this is a lot of numbers, but what, what I'm describing is basically these extremely tightly interwoven transits between Neptune and Pluto that for the next 39 years are going to be transforming the world as we know it so that it will be completely unrecognizable to us 39 years from now that kind of hits kind of close to home. My son's in gate personality, son's in gate 41. So I'm thinking about that. <laughs> Pluto hits 41. Yeah. Well, you know, but you're, you're in the second line. So you have a little time. At least. I got a little bit of time before it all, <laughs> all goes down, but yeah. So it does seem that we're kind of in this, the home stretch or, you know, yeah, I mean, we're, we're end, already of, end of this transition. The or, last gasping breath. Yeah, I mean, this is really, in some ways, what's interesting is, even though people list February 15th as the 2027, you know, February 15th, 2027 is the change of global cycles, which is correct, but it's actually May 9th, 2024, that kicks off the whole transition. And Ra himself had kind of pinpointed this information years ago. And it's so interesting now to finally be living in the world where this transition is, is really kicked off. We're seeing it. But of course, because it's Neptune, what are we really seeing? It's we're not really, it's not going to be clear to us how much has changed until Neptune leaves the gate. Right. Once it's gone, we see what it's done while it was there. But while it's there, it's all veiled. So we're undergoing this washing away of the current human experience, really. And we take for granted what the human experience is. You know, you go out there into the world and you have your you know, heroic adventure, or you have your inner version of that adventure where you kind of get to learn all about yourself and go through this journey of self-discovery. People in the future are going to be too busy for self-discovery. They're not going to be interested in mysticism. You know, there's a lot of changes that are going on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to go down the whole 2027 rabbit hole of prophecy, but it's exciting to me to get to be alive during this time of such great transformation. And that is what I see human design's role as, you know, is really for the children so that they can grow up and be healthy and persevere and make decisions correctly as themselves in this rapidly changing world, which is going to be fraught with peril. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So in this time when there are all these changes happening, you've mentioned a few of these different theories that have been emerging and gaining a lot of traction and a lot of attention on social media maybe you could give us your perspectives on some of them. You had mentioned Harry Parker's work with quantum human design and also John Martin and Teresa Blanding. So I, I would love to hear just what it's like for you when you first encounter people putting something forth that's different than what you've read. Cause I know you've read so much of Ra's original work and listened to so much of his work. 
So what is it like for you when you first hear somebody bringing forth something that's really different or that's being interpreted in a different way or transmitted in a different way to your experience, these two, at least different theories coming out or different approaches? So I have watched a few of her videos in the past when I was, and I kind of just, you know, I saw her work and then I ended up buying her transit activation uh, journal where you kind of have journaling questions. And, you know, I, I enjoyed that. I mean, it was a couple of years ago or maybe it was, yeah, I think two years ago. And I would be, I would be, you know, I would always keep it next to the bath and I would journal in the bath depending on, she did some interesting things. Like she would talk about what gate the full moon and the new moon would be in for that month. And I enjoyed that. And her questions to me, you know, seemed a little bit, well, she has a background in emotional freedom techniques, and I would assume neuro-linguistic programming. And, you know, I'm not opposed to these other systems. I'm not one of those people that says every system that's not human design is automatically seven-centered. In fact, if that system emerged since 1781, chances are it's an attempt at a full-fledged nine-centered system. And chances are those systems actually do have real value to the nine-centered being that may only be tapped into by right variable people because people who are such left variable like me are going to misinterpret those those systems and see them as seven center if, if you catch my drift. Mm -hmm. So I'm not exactly, you know, opposed to emotional freedom techniques or neurolinguistic programming or any of these techniques, because I believe that there may be great benefit in these sort of newer technologies, if we can call them that, or newer psychological tool sets. So I've had her books, but I've never really spent a lot of time, you know, reading her work. And then whenever I would see on her webpage or anything, I would see something like, how to make money the sacred way or like sacred finance. And I would just kind of not, it, it just doesn't, you know, I mean, I don't like that. You know, <laughs> it's just, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. But what's interesting is when I actually dug into her work, I actually have a lot of affection for her and a lot of respect for her as an analyst. And it was interesting to me to discover that. So I hadn't really dug into her work until there began to be these criticisms from some of the Instagram community that I'm now a part of. I was kind of added to this group text and I'm really glad that they did because I'm not some guy who's like totally in the loop scanning all of the new content. I really, um, you know, have to be kind of pulled into it sometimes. And so I was added to this group. And one of the things in that group was people saying, well, and they were making memes about it, you know, about how Karen Curry Parker had recently stated, if you're a generator and you're feeling really frustrated, don't quit, just keep going, push through it. And they were saying, you know, they were making jokes like that she was really telling people to not live their design, like to ignore the signpost of frustration as a signpost you're going kind of the wrong direction or something. And I just think that that is a, not a very charitable view because I understood immediately what she meant. I'm pretty sure anyway. And the way I interpret it is what she's saying is if you had a sacral response to something, or if you're an emotional generator and you had emotion, you have emotional clarity, this is correct for you. You know, you have emotional clarity, you wanna, you wanna do this and you're doing it and you're you're in it, that sometimes that frustration will still build up. And what it does, I feel it, believe me. And when it builds up, I want nothing more than to quit. And you know what? It's the exact same feeling of wanting nothing more than to initiate. Quitting is a form of initiating. That's why generators can have such a hard time when they really are living their design, getting out of things, because they, in some sense, you know, can't initiate getting out of it or they get in the wrong sequence of events again. It's like you're trying to catch the right sequence of events bus and you keep missing the bus because you keep jumping off the wrong one without waiting for it to let you off, you know, and you have to kind of let the wrong sequence of events play out sometimes, you know, and, and then you can catch the next bus into the right sequence of events.
you know, I've been thinking recently about the permanence of human relationships. And this is something Ra really hammers home, entering into relationships correctly. And it's so sad when you haven't entered into a relationship correctly, because in some sense, that is a permanent sequence of events that you have entered into that will never be the same as if you had waited, actually responded into that if you're a generator. Yeah. Or, you know, been invited and the splenic hit if you're a splenic projector and so on. That's kind of where, where I'm at with that is that Karen Curry Parker was not telling people to stick around in jobs they hate or something like that. Although she also had another great point. She said, not every generator is gonna have the, the luck to really love their job and that's okay. Like a big question from generators is, you know, I don't get such a sacral response. Someone says, do you love your job? And I'm like, eh, does that mean that I'm not living my design? No, it doesn't mean that. Absolutely not. If somebody asks you if you want to quit your job and you go, uh-huh, then quit your job. Sure. You know, great. But, but until that happens, you know, a lot of times, again, it can be the generator wanting to initiate saying, I'm not happy at my job. I'm going to quit and I'm going to go out there and find a better job. And they typically have an undefined G center and it's, you know, the not self drawing them into initiating this big search, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's not what it's about. It's about literally, you know, noticing what you've responded to. And also I should mention for manifesting generators, I found this to be true that they oftentimes won't get an actual verbal sound or an auditory sound. They'll literally just be like tensing up or walking out the door or moving towards or taking some action. So really learning, learning your body's language, like learning how to speak your own language. <laughs> and of course, for other types, they have to learn this as well and what it is to be a splenic person, you know, or what it is to, to be uh, an ego projector, an ego G projector like you, John. I mean, that these are things you have to learn because the book can't exactly tell you, especially if you're one of the more rare configurations yeah. where there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a very big sample size. So you mm -hmm. kind of have to learn yourself. So I see Karen Curry Parker as very much in the experiment and speaking the language of the experiment and sharing what she's found and giving generators encouragement. And, and then the other side of it, I wanted to say about her is that I realized she's a four six. And this is one case where I am glad I found out about her chart because I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I don't typically look at someone's chart to try to understand them. Maybe I should, you know, I used to do that more, but now I feel like with my undefined head and undefined ajna, oftentimes I just don't want to push my mind to try to, you know, you know what I mean? I, I just kind of like let it go and I, I don't really push to do that. But for whatever reason, her chart did pop up. I think someone had posted it and I saw that she was a four six and I went, of course she's a four six. This makes all the sense in the world. She is externalizing a certain way of being. You know, what's so funny is you have all these manifestation culture people who are all about, you know, the secret and the vision boards and all of the, you can make your own reality. And that is really opposed to a lot of the human design ethos, you know, of you're not a manifester, you know, unless you actually are. But even if you are a manifester, you still don't want to go out there, you know, doing it like this. Like you, you want to instead, you know, wait for your emotional clarity or you want to wait till you know that you have enough willpower to complete it and so on. So I guess my point is this whole manifestation culture thing, you know, really does seem like a, a real trap for a lot of people. However, if you have a fourth line, which is really, you know, a third of people out there, there might actually be something to it, by which I mean the fourth line, what they externalize does become their reality. 
And they do become poster children for, for certain ways of being and certain ways of living. For me, it doesn't really help me. For me to put out an image or and so on is not really going to necessarily create that reality around me. I have to deliver something practical. You know, I'll be burned at the stake if I don't. But for a fourth line, part of their duty is to sort of create this atmosphere, to externalize a certain way of being in the world and to yeah. become sort of a poster child for that. Well, then, and I do see her. I see her as a poster child of a very satisfied generator. Right. Oh, well, this is the, I mean, the, the term Instagram influencer seems, or, you know, whatever, what do they call it? Social media influencer, whatever it is, like that's the fourth line for sure. But I want to come back to this point that you made about the sacral, because I'm a mental projector. So I have no energy center definition in my own design. And I feel very sensitive to the energy of other people and especially the energy of generators. When I notice them in the midst of their activity, it's something that I feel I can really sense in my own body. And I think a lot about how Ra talked about the not self theme of the sacral center is not knowing when enough is enough. What I feel from generators is that one of the gifts of the sacral center is to know when you're done. That, Absolutely. that there's Absolutely. a natural sense of when you're done with something. Oh yeah, you nailed it. There's a sense of completion. There's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of this is enough, really. Or, you know? or that it, the energy's just dropped out. You just it doesn't turn you on anymore. Your energy won't get up for it. You're just you're finished with it. And I can feel that. Like I've had experiences with generators where we're in the midst of an activity, and I can feel oh, this is over. They are done. <laughs> and I, I can feel that the energy is dying. <laughs> you know, the energy oh, is- Oh, absolutely. Right. And I think if they entered into it correctly, you're going to feel this warm glow of satisfaction. And if they entered into it incorrectly, it's going to feel like the floor just got dropped out or something because, you know, they didn't have the energy to, to persevere uh, through it. Right. Um, and it could even so I think one of the things that I notice in working with generators is that they'll often ignore that sense in themselves of their own natural boundary, their own natural finish point with something. And they'll keep going for the sake of somebody else or for the sake of, you know, whatever their open center themes are. And so it makes me curious about this concept of overcoming the urge to quit, because I wonder if sometimes that could be just the sign that your energy is ready to let go. Right. I really do love to investigate energy level in terms of appetites for things and in terms of even psychoanalytic concepts like libido, which I find are very helpful, not just sexual libido, but, but, you know, libido is a generalized, the energy for different things. And I, I love the um, British psychoanalyst, Adam Phillips, because he said, one of his favorite questions is not, how are you? It's how have your appetites been lately? What have you had appetites for? And it's one of his favorite questions because it really gets at, you know, we do gain and lose appetites. Uh, speaking as a generator, I can say that sometimes I have completely lost an appetite for almost anything and I'm not getting sacral responses yes to all the stuff that I used to really enjoy. And it could be that I'm deeply melancholic and as a generator, not a manifesting generator, I have an order of events, I have an order of operations and I have to do something first before I'm able to unlock the libido 
and the appetites that I've lost. So to explain, maybe I've had a terrible heartbreak or something and I'm laying around feeling depressed and I'm just on the couch and I don't have a sacral response to almost anything. And then finally something gives me a little response and I'm able to kind of follow that thread and then re-enter into life and re-enter into the sequence of events. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, you know, I do notice like losing touch with my energy and losing touch with my sacral and having to rediscover that, having to find where it's gone. Mm. You know, something that used to be so satisfying to me is no longer satisfying. Something I used to really enjoy has now just become a chore. So what you're talking about with that knowing when to quit, when it's become a chore, is absolutely spot on. And I think projectors can be the most helpful people in the world for noticing that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's, that's tremendous. What you're talking about is where a generator doesn't realize they've lost the steam. Mm -hmm. What Karen Curry Parker is talking about is when the generator themselves is feeling such an innate pressure to initiate something and they just have to take a deep breath and go for a walk and go, no, mm -hmm. I'm not going to initiate it. Just like I'm not going to walk up and talk to that person I want to talk to. Just like I'm not going to go out there and, you know, tell this person, you know, basically, I, you know, I think that a lot of generators struggle with this where, you know, like if I send a text to somebody and they haven't sent a text back, there's a desire that to, to initiate, to keep sending texts. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the not self of the generator. That's going against the natural flow. It's barking up the wrong tree, you know, and it doesn't matter what that tree is and how much you think that tree is for you. It's not for you. If you're, if you're knocking on that, or if you're trying to, you know, get a reaction and it's not happening and it, you know, it ends up with these things where I think a lot of the relational issues between people in relationships nowadays, you know, 70% of them are generators. And so many of them, those relationship issues are caused by them initiating. They initiate. And a lot of times I will say also as a generator that has an undefined solar plexus, if I miss my opportunity to confront through authentic response, then it's like a train wreck because I, later I can't really fix it. So if someone says, is this okay? And I'm like, sacredly no, but I say because of my undefined solar plexus, yeah, it's okay. And I go along with it. Then later to say, hey, that's not okay. You don't necessarily get an opportunity to do that in response. So it kind of causes this train wreck effect by missing the chance to respond. The longer I go into human design, it really is about sequences of events. And you see that when you enter into something correctly, you're going to have those times where you want to initiate quitting and you know, you got to persevere. Likewise, if you enter into something incorrectly, you're going to lose steam on it and maybe think that you still have steam and maybe need a good projector friend to help tell you that you've lost steam on that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So with this same kind of idea, what do you think the difference between say meeting a little bit of resistance, a little bit of frustration and what we would normally think of as a generator being here to work, right? Work takes effort. And so where, how do you make that distinction as a generator? Well, yeah. And, and I have now understood resistance to me is going against the flow of life and resistance is also having people in your life who are generating resistance, which oftentimes can just be kind of a subtle, um, almost like termites on your foundation, like pulling you into transference, you know, whatever it is, they say, well, do you really need to be, you know, for I, I'm desire. So somebody who's giving me resistance to somebody in my life who's saying, do you really need to be involved in that? You know, you could just stay out of it and so on. And so a lot of times I will see the resistance and then I'll see, I'll see really more clearly who is for me and who's kind of my ally and, and who isn't. Now, as far as the, yeah, being here to work, yeah, the work is going to be hard work. 
And yet I don't necessarily think that working is always meeting resistance. I mean, it certainly is, but a lot of times if I'm meeting resistance, it means it's because I'm trying to work too fast or it's because I'm trying to work in a way that I'm trying to force something to happen. Uh, you know, I'm trying to kick in the door when I have the key in my pocket, you know? And so a lot of times I can end up in this. The other thing I'd like to mention though, is that the not self themes they can be understood in a lot of different ways. I would say that the first way most people understand the not self theme is as a signpost that you're not living your design. So you have generators who are full of frustration and so on. So that's kind of the first way. But then if you really get into how the not self works, you see that, you know, I, I don't want to make light of or diminish what PTSD really is, but it's something akin to PTSD around their not self signature, meaning, or their not self theme. So every generator out there you know, they're ordering their food at the restaurant, part of them is bracing themselves for the frustration that the order is going to be wrong. And every projector who meets somebody who seems to recognize them is kind of part of them, their mind anyway, is bracing themselves for the bitterness of that person overlooking them and ignoring them mm -hmm. and so on. And, and so we're always kind of bracing ourselves for this. So what ends up happening is that the not self rationale, which particularly happens for everyone except split definition and quad split, happens in the centers primarily, in the conditioning receptors in the centers, which is to say the defined, the activated gates in the wow. undefined centers. But, you know, and if you're split or quad split, it's going to be more in the bridging gates or channels as the case may be. But I guess what I'm trying to say is um, that not self rationale is going to threaten the not self theme. So what it's going to say for me as a generator with undefined ego, it says, you better prove yourself or you're going to be frustrated. My undefined solar plexus, it says, you better not disappoint that person or you're going to be frustrated, you know, and you can avoid frustration as long as you walk on eggshells around them, as long as you don't disappoint them, you know, as long as you prove that you're, you know, you're capable of this and so on. And so the not self is going to kind of threaten the not self theme as a mental rationale. And so what I've realized is that in some sense, the problem for generators is not frustration, it's that they're making decisions based on trying to avoid frustration, right? They're making mental decisions going, I can avoid frustration if only I do this. And, you know, the only thing that really works is to be true as a generator to your, you know, sacral center or to your emotional clarity working in tandem with that. And there's a version of this for every type. I don't want to make it generator specific. Every type has to kind of learn the laws of the Maya. And that's what human design gives you. It gives you an absolute of the Maya. I love when Ra tells the story of Jonathan. Do you know that story? I, I don't want to you know, go too far into it, but it's a biblical story. And there's this guy, Jonathan, and he's a soldier and he's coming back from battle. And little does he know that, you know, Seth and the people who did the battle had made an agreement with a shaman, with this medicine man. And the agreement was they wouldn't eat any food for 24 hours, but he doesn't know this. He's just a, you know, a lowly soldier. And he's coming back and he finds a, a beehive. And so he's munching on the, the honey and eating the beehive. And then, you know, the shaman says, something is wrong. Now there will be pestilence and plague, you know, for 40 years or whatever it is. And it's because of him. And the only solution is to put him to death. And so he's killed. And, you know, Ra loves that story because he says, you know, this shows for nature, there is really no, uh, no excuse. You know what I mean? The laws of the Maya are the laws of the Maya. Jonathan, you know, said, hey, I didn't know that I was breaking the law by eating this honey. And they said, well, too bad. You ate, you ate the honey. That's why I love human design, because it really tells you how it works. You get to see how it works, and then you get to see. And I, that's a, that's equally valid part of the experiment, especially for third lines. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everyone goes through that. You really get to see what happens. I didn't used to have such a, a sensitivity to my dietary regimen until I began eating correctly. 
Then I kind of stopped eating correctly as an experiment. And whew, when you violate that law of the Maya, you know, you're not going to feel very good. So, yeah, you're making a great point there. When we're going up against the laws of nature, the laws of the body, the laws of physics, or whatever the fundamental laws are that we all have to abide by, we get that direct feedback one way or the other. The body will start complaining or getting ill or, you know, whatever it is. And that is a feedback loop. Absolutely. But yeah, I, as far as, you know, the not self rationale, I think that it can be so nefarious that people can actually try to avoid the not self theme as a way. And, they, and then they ironically end up getting it. You know, the more I tried to avoid the frustration, the more I would, you know, end up initiating, I would think I can avoid this frustration as long as I prove to them, you know, because I have an undefined ego, right? Or I can avoid this frustration as long as I, you know, insert solar plexus things, right? As long as I'm exciting and fun and adventurous and all this stuff. I do think that in some sense, you do get to get to have your cake and eat it too, but only when you've hit the absolute rock bottom of giving up trying to be that not self thing. In some sense, we do get to enjoy the occasional, almost being a super version of that undefined center or that bridging gate as it may be. But in order to do that, I have to first decondition enough so that my whole life isn't ruled by that. You can see it very obviously for people who are simple split definition and have a single bridging gate. That's one of the, the clearest ways to tell. You look at that single bridging gate and everything about that person is that they want to be that thing. That is the bridging gate. And then you tell them, well, that's not you. And they say, but my whole life is wrapped up in the identity of being this thing. And then you say, well, you know, first you have to notice how it's not you notice how it's been running your life. Notice how every decision you've been making has been because of this bridging gate. Then as you decondition in three or four years, your relationship to that gate is going to change and you get to become the world's leading expert on it. You know what I mean? You get to become very wise about it, particularly in the role of that gate and relationships. And so your connection to that bridging gate changes. And then you actually do get to sort of put on the costume of that bridging gate every now and then. A transit comes by, someone's in your aura and they have the bridging gate. You know, you get to then be a super version of that. So if your bridging gate is 52, stillness, you know, I know someone who had this who meditated four hours a day. You're automatically a generator then, right? That's your bridging gate. Believe me, this person was not satisfied by all that meditation. It wasn't working, right? Because everything for this person was, I am the meditator. I have stillness. But they didn't. They only had the nine, not the 52. And there's a lot of depression there. There's a lot of depression in the format channels when they have hanging gates. And so, you know, there's this effect where for that person, thankfully, through some deconditioning, they were able to really, you know, stop that identification with that theme. And then some years later, they can still lead a meditation group and in some sense be a super meditator when they do, you know, because they're amplifying that stillness. They also would, would have to acknowledge that's really not them. So I, I think our relationship to the not self changes over time. And, and, you know, we first have to give up embodying and being that thing, but then we actually get to kind of become somewhat of an expert on it. And it's pretty cool. You know, we, we get to really change our relationship to that. I have a completely undefined solar plexus. Most of my life, I was trying to be sexy and fun and cool and hip 
and interesting and exciting and all of those solar plexus things. By the way, people think the solar plexus is about getting emotional. That's more in the ego. The solar plexus is like an aroma or a scent or a luxurious, you know, to luxuriate in life, to really um, savor things is the solar plexus. And so for so long, my not self was wrapped up in being that person and trying to be that. Well, my deconditioning was to realize I am not obligated to give other people pleasure. I am not obligated to give them excitement or to give them adventure. I am not obligated to be all of these solar plexus things for them. And so once I was free of that, I was then able to kind of get to this place where I was truly living with a neutral, you know, solar plexus. I mean, they say undefined solar plexus is wired cold. And I was really living that coldness and feeling that coldness. But then some years later, after going through this period of really deconditioning and going deep into that coldness, I found that I am now once again able to amplify and in some sense be a super adventurer and a super excited, you know what I mean? I'm able to kind of amplify that ambient solar plexus energy. So I really do think that it's not such a, a simple thing that the not self is all bad and you have to get rid of it and so on. You don't get rid of it. It's always going to be part of your personality. It's always going to be who you are. Your relationship in some sense, which sounds funny because we call it the not self, it's always going to be, I should say, part of your mind and part of your personality. Mm -hmm. And what really changes is it no longer controls you, but you then in some sense get to have your cake and eat it too, because the secret desire of everyone with an undefined center or a bridging gate is to actually have that. I mean, I can't tell you how much I wished I could have a defined ego when I started human design. Now, I love the fact that I don't have a defined ego. I love my design, but I was only able to get there through completely giving up trying to be the defined ego person. And now I'm somewhat of an expert on ego issues. I realized that I've always been somewhat fascinated by themes of betrayal and revenge and themes of you know promises and do people keep their promises or not and themes of courage and bravery. And all of this stuff is such a fascinating world to me. I'm just no longer trying to be the infinitely loyal with infinite capacity to prove to others how you know much I keep my promises and all of that. I don't even make promises anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love the way Alakanan Diaz talks about it because he has this uh, one interview where he says, you know, like in the first seven years or in the beginning of the deconditioning process, a lot of what we're cleaning out is our historical not self theme. So like a, a lot of that process is clearing out like what you're talking about, the trauma of frustration, the trauma of bitterness, whatever the not self theme is for your type. But then at some point it becomes something that's more of, it's not a sign that you're, you know, as soon as you feel frustration as a generator, or as soon as you feel bitterness as a projector, it's not necessarily a sign of being in your not self. It's more like it becomes a signpost, a present time signpost of the situation that you're in. So for me as a mental projector, I don't always have the time and space to talk through everything that's happening every moment of my life to get to my truth about it. But bitterness and recognition are two things that I can experience pretty viscerally, pretty immediately, pretty quickly in whatever situation I'm in. And I've found now after being in the experiment for a while, and I think this is probably true for a lot of projectors. So if you're a projector out there, that if you find yourself in a new situation and you're starting to feel bitter, it's starting to just taste bad to you, the experience, that may just be a sign that it's not for you. 
And when it can become a sort of present time signpost, then it actually becomes something that's very helpful, I think. And it's helpful when your not self theme comes up because you may not have been able to catch your authority speaking in every moment, but you can certainly catch when something isn't for you. I think that's the real gift of getting beyond that initial historical deconditioning that we all have to go through. Yeah, absolutely. I would just say on the topic for projectors in particular, I think for me, I've noticed that bitterness can take years and years to build up and years and years to go away much longer. You know, I, I see bitterness and I see the projector decision-making process is on much slower time frame. However, I see that the misrecognition can happen in an instant, particularly, well, I mean, this is for a splenic projector I'm thinking of, but I'm thinking of particular cases where there's like a real misrecognition. Like, you know, I guess one would be a gift. Somebody gives you a gift and the gift has nothing to do with you as a person. And you see in that gift, how they see you. And you feel so bitter that that's how they see you, you know, that misrecognition in that like wrong gift. Or a different example of it would just be the wrong compliment as well. Uh, that I've seen a projector get a compliment that was meant sincerely, but completely misrecognized them. That also is a signpost, but the greatest signpost for projectors that I've found, I mean, I'm not a projector, so, but from my observations is simply color transference. And that is that you will really see a lot of people who pull you into the transference and you can kind of notice that and then realize, wow, you know, there are some projectors that have, you know, defined root and they have defined solar plexus and they have all of this stuff going on. And I, I really think it takes a really long time sometimes for the bitterness to set in. To give an example, I know a projector who I've known you know, for 25 years who moved to New York City for 15 years and then came back from New York City after 15 years, extremely bitter from being in the music industry and just believing that nobody recognizes really real talent and the music industry is all just a bunch of fakes and, and so on. And there's this heavy, heavy bitterness. Now this person is carrying that bitterness with them and I wouldn't be surprised if it takes 15 years to you know, get over it, but I mean, I, I sure hope it's, it's not the case. As you're saying, you need to decondition through, you know, that bitterness and decondition to clean out all that bitterness from past trauma and from the past sort of neural wiring of reactivity. And then once that happens, yeah, there's a, there's a different, um, you know, relationship to bitterness. I, I can't speak from experience, but I can speak from observation that that sounds correct. I do want to finish on one last topic, which you, which you brought up, Amy, which is John Martin and Teresa Blanding. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to just touch briefly on that because that was another interesting offshoot, uh, you know, and I'm not hundred percent familiar on what they're stating, but what it seems to me is that John Martin and Teresa Blanding are saying that your strategy and authority is only really valid if your strategy channel or channels are fully activated on the design side. And that if they're only half design and half personality, or if they are fully personality, but only half design or fully personality and no design in any of those cases, that your strategy and authority might not work for you. And instead, you might have something more similar to the reflector strategy of waiting a month and waiting to notice your design tone, right? The tone of your design sun earth, that is the design internal. Mm -hmm. And you notice that tone. For me, it is taste. See, I am still a generator in their system. And, I, and, and again, it's not clear to me if you only have a personality channel, 
And does that mean you're not that type anymore? I mean, that, that part of it was a little bit confusing to me. But what they were saying is that your strategy and authority won't work unless you have a design activation to the authority center. Now, I haven't seen that in the wild, but I'm also somebody who has a design channel. My 952 is a design channel. Now, I experience my 952 design side very differently than I experienced my 2946 on the personality side. That 2946 on the personality side, because it's, you know, it's all in black, it's all personality. I experienced that, and I've, I've only been thinking about this recently, so I haven't fully digested what this might mean, but it seems to me that even though I get a physical sacral response, that physical sacral response is often to information. It's often to having gotten enough information or even the right combination of words. And so people will be asking me if I want to commit to an experience. Do you want to go on this road trip? And I'll have no reaction. And I'll say, tell me more and tell me more. And sometimes at the end, I say, I really don't know. And then the next day they say, by the way, you know, we're going to go here and here and here. And somebody said that that place is the most magical park on the whatever. And that sequence of the words, the magical enchanted, you know, whatever, like I went, I'm thinking of an example. I went to the great sand dunes up in Colorado last month. And the actual description of those sand dunes gave me a sacral response. Oh, hell yeah, I want to go to this. I wouldn't miss it for anything. But someone else describing it with different words may not have given me that sacral response. And so you can, so I can see for myself with that 2946, it's all about committing myself to an experience, an experience that I can't get out of until it's over. So I'm really committing myself to being there till the end. And in order to do that, I do think in some sense, my mind has to be on board. I mean, not entirely. Sometimes my mind is going, how the hell is my body responding to that? Do I really want to do that? I guess I do. I guess I have to update my mental model of myself to include this new information that I actually like this thing that I didn't think I liked. But I guess what I'm saying is the fact that it's on the personality side, I do believe it changes the quality to some extent just based on my own personal observation. Because my 952 on the design side, I see much more as a physical thing where oftentimes I'll be sitting and waiting and I can't make myself act because I just haven't built up enough, in some sense, adrenalized pressure and focused stillness. For those listeners who aren't familiar with 952, it's a channel of like very adrenalized stillness. It's a channel where you're focused in your stillness. So oftentimes I'll be sitting there under the tree, so to speak, and everybody's toiling and they go, geez, Joan is so lazy and they're working and working and working. But then at the end, they don't know what to do and the project hasn't come together. And then I get up from under the tree and it's like a bullseye the first time because I have that focus and that pinpoint accuracy from having sat in that stillness and having gathered and concentrated all of the energy together to finish the project. That process for me as a design side, excuse me, as a design side channel, very, very different. Now, granted, it's also a logical channel. It's different from the 2946, which is an experiential abstract channel. There are other differences as well. So I don't want to take it too far here. In short, I do think John Martin and Teresa Blanding are doing interesting research. I don't know how responsible it is to tell people that if they don't have a fully designed side channel that they shouldn't follow their strategy and authority. That's questionable to me. However, I am curious to see the outcome of people who've been experimenting with it. And I'd be curious to find out more. Uh, you know, it does occur to me that Teresa Blanding wrote a lot of the materials with Ra or assembled a lot of those materials. 
And so she absolutely has been living her design for many years. And I've always liked the work of John Martin. So I assume they must have good reasons for coming forth with this, this new knowledge. You know, I, it's just not yet clear to me what the ramifications of that are and what exactly they're saying. Are they saying your aura changes? Because I haven't found that to be true at all. I've found no matter if you have a personality or design or a combination, you know, you can feel it in the aura. You know, that to me is pretty settled. It's like kind of a closed issue, but uh, maybe it is true. I don't know if there are people out there who have only conscious, you know, only personality channels who are having a really hard time with their strategy and authority and it's not working for them. I'd like to hear from them and, and to hear if that is a problem for them. Well, you're talking to one. I don't necessarily have a problem with it, but I think there's absolutely a difference between the black and the red, the personality and the design. We do need to look at it with a certain amount of nuance. And yet we're dealing with the whole human experience. When we look at a body graph, we're looking at the juxtaposition of the black and the red. What comes from that is the overall definition, the type, the strategy, the authority. And I have the 2551 defined entirely on the personality side in black. And I have experienced multiple times and I continue to experience this type of will that isn't just coming from the mind. It's a whole experience where I feel that my, I'm being pulled, my body and my mind in a certain direction. You know, the way I would describe it is I have to, I can't not, it's a certain willfulness, but it's also a sense of helplessness, which is really interesting to me. It's, it's not necessarily a choice. This is something that I'm doing or I have to do and I can't not do. When I really look at all of this, human design is giving us a lot of signposts. They're giving us points of reference. And I think it's really easy to take this in some sort of dogmatic rules-based approach to how we're living our lives. But I don't know that that's actually how it works. And I think that may be where it kind of breaks down when we start thinking that you can't do this or you can do that. When if you add in something like your tonal cognition coming from your design sun and earth, and yours is what taste, mine's touch. I also have an experience of that. So that's an additional signpost that I can use for correctness in the same way that you pointed out. It's, it's very accurate. It holds up where we can also see when we're being pulled into transference on the personality or the mind side. So all of these things are really signposts for us as we're actually living the experiment or seeing what this means to us as individuals. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. These, these tools don't have to be exclusive. And, you know, I, I don't want to put words, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I haven't actually seen John Martin and Teresa Blanding's content on this. So I, I don't want to say that they would dismiss those other signposts as well. I, I, and this might be a topic for a future discussion or even just something to, to track. Noticing that 2551 for you and noticing how different that might be for a 2551 on the design side and how they might be sort of physically exuding a certain frequency that for you is actually coming across as part of your personality and just how different that is that that we can differentiate and yet both of you have that same frequency and it really shows this kind of uh, this kind of magic where yeah we do live in a juxtaposition of the physical and the uh, spiritual if you will you know mm -hmm. we do live in this in this incredible juxtaposition and there are effects that come from we could even say from language and from the mind and from the whole 
personality side that do have physical effects in the body. This is something the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan discovered. He discovered that certain words can trigger traumatic stress reactions in the body. You know, it's mind and body holism. And then meanwhile, on the other side, we, we've absolutely determined that the quality of your physical health and of your, your physical form absolutely affects the mind as well. So, you know, it, it really is this beautiful synthesis and that is what we're seeing in the body graph. Yes, well said. Gosh, we could talk for days and we would really love to have you back again, Jonah, to talk more. I can feel your design so clearly. It's the focus and the concentration and the, the sharing and, and the power of, of your energy is really palpable. So thank you for sharing with us uh, your perspective and your experience and all of the research and study that you've done. It's really a valuable thing to share. So we really appreciate it. Thank you for being oh, here. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and uh, looking forward to the next time we can all get together in Aura. Yeah, yes. me, me too. We've done that once or twice and I look forward to doing it again. And as we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to leave the listeners with? If someone wanted to reach out or connect with you, uh, what you're available for or what? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. I also have a YouTube channel. And on Facebook, I started the Human Design Catalyst group, which um, if you're interested at all in any human design discussion, please join. There are some other good Facebook groups out there as well. As far as what I offer in the past, I have offered both free and paid readings. I've done the free readings on YouTube, and then I've done the paid readings where I typically will do a recorded reading before talking to that person. And then I will include in the package a follow-up video. And I like doing that because I like to be able to kind of have a cold read approach where I'm literally just looking at the body graph first. And then I like to discuss that with the person uh, at a time after that. These days, I have taken a hiatus from giving the readings, but I hope to resume at some point in the next month or two. So don't hesitate to reach out to me if, if you'd like to see my availability for a reading. And also, I'm, I'm always open to discussion of, of human design. I, I have a lot of people who just reach out to me asking interesting questions or with ideas for something they want me to cover on the YouTube channel, or they just want to share the results of their experiment. So I'm, I'm always available for that as well. Thank you. I, like Amy said, the depth of your research and your interest in human design and your openness to explore and to connect and share with others really stands out to me. And that's probably what initially drew me to you to reach out and to connect in the first place. We really do appreciate you coming on today to talk to us and spending some time with us. I couldn't think of a better person to explore some of these different topics, perspectives, new fractals emerging. And so hopefully we can do this again and do a part two soon. Oh, I'd love that. I'm available anytime. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for more upcoming episodes on the same channel. Sparklers and shades